You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Billboard promises of shows and parties and drinks and money filtered through military glass and became attack and entry points. Close-packed urban canyons designed to funnel desert winds became sniper alleys. Iridescent photovoltaic paint roofs became drop zones. The cypress arcologies became high-ground advantage and priority attack zones thanks to the way they dominated the Vegas skyline and loomed over everything else, bigger and more ambitious than all of Sin City's previous forays into the fantastical combined. Paolo Bacigalupi is the author of Pump 6, The Wind-Up Girl, Shipbreaker, The Drowned Cities, The Doubt Factory, and Zombie Baseball Beatdown. His new book is The Water Knife. Thank you for joining me, Paolo. Thanks for having me. This is such an interesting book. We like to think that science fiction, which is set in the future, is somehow a prediction of the future. It's This book is certainly an extrapolation of the way things could go, but this is also a really great description of the way things are right now. Yeah, uh, it's sort of funny, actually, sort of seeing the California drought suddenly, you know, taking such a toll that you sort of feel like what you thought you were writing about a futuristic thriller suddenly feels a little too close and a little too present. It's it's a shock, actually. This book begins with... Um, some really interesting images, and you describe these things called arcologies, which is where people have lived. So give us an idea of kind of the layout of the United States in at the beginning of the book. This story is set in the near future in the United States, and it's, it centers in the American Southwest in a time of a massive drought, which has taken a toll on, on all the states in the Southwest. But that means that they are also sort of muscling up against each other and starting to fight for scarce water resources, especially along the Colorado River. The story centers mostly around the the machinations of Phoenix and Las Vegas, with uh, California actually looming in the in the distance and possibly going to change everything. The the story is really, you know, set in this time when everything has become very disrupted. Um, there are all sorts of climate uh, and weather-related disruptions that are going on. So there have been massive droughts in the southern United States. There have been major hurricanes. There are floods, things like that. And all of that has sort of started people, put people on the move. There are a lot of climate refugees. And because of that, a lot of the states that are doing better or that are more stable are trying to set up border controls and trying to control the flow of refugees because they're afraid of being swamped. So in this future, you sort of see the, the federal government is, is much weaker than it used to be, um, and the states are much stronger than they used to be, and there's, they're sort of in a transitional space where uh, nobody's quite sure what the new rules are, but everybody has a sense that the rules are changing. One of the things I think that's really great about this book is the sense of dread it inspires because we are have been conditioned and have always lived in times when things were going to change and things were going to get better. But that's not the case in this book. And I think that's a really interesting perception, this idea that what we have always taken for granted, the drought's going to end. It's 
what happens when that changes, when that basic assumption changes? Right. I, I think there's something I'm really interested in, which is the idea of narrative tunneling, um, which is something that human beings do where because yesterday was a certain way, we expect tomorrow to be similar. Um, and so if we think weather patterns were a certain way in the past, we expect those weather patterns to be similar in the future. And and the thing about climate change is that it throws that whole uh, game system sort of out, and suddenly you're in a new, you're on a new landscape, you're on a new game board, um, and and that's fascinating to me uh, because uh, with that change, we aren't really equipped to understand exactly what brave new world we are dropping into. Um, you know, is the drought going to last one year or two years, or is it supposed to last a hundred years? We don't know. Um, and and that uh, and that uncertainty is sort of threaded through the entire novel. People people understand that there was a period where there was some stability where they could count on things, but now they're in a space where where there's no stability, and tomorrow is com- likely to be completely unlike yesterday. Well, I, I thought one of the interesting <laughs> notions to me is that we like to think of our future as looking different from today. Um, better in some way. But... Sure. That, that narrative of sort of like improvement, everything always gets better, more and more people are coming out of poverty, uh, technology is making us faster, sleeker, and more sculpted, whatever the thing is. Um, we're all getting healthier, our lives last longer. That narrative. Yeah, that narrative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting narrative. I don't really believe in that. Um, well, I want to believe in it, but I worry that it's not true. Um, uh, for me, you know, I'm I tend to be the person who who looks around and says, "Yeah, sure, things are good today, but, 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 what are we missing? What, what's the, what's the data point that we didn't understand? What's the, what's the actual dominant narrative that's about to come up and bite us on the back, and that we never saw coming at all? Um, uh, those other narratives are interesting. Those stories that we tell ourselves that, like, yeah, I'm, I'm better off than my parents were, and I'm going to make my kids better off than I was. Uh, you know, and it would be great if that actually is the way things turn out. But I worry that that we're missing details that matter." We might like to think that, say, uh, Norway is our future or Sweden is our future. These kind of clean streets laid out. Those, those places have functional democracies, I think, though, don't yeah. they? I mean, I, don't, I just don't see it. I, I just don't see it. I, I guess, I guess when, I'm, when I'm looking at the future, there are things that I look at very specifically. And I see something like the fact that we have these problems with climate change already. We actually are starting to see you know, physical effects on the landscape already. We're likely to see more of those in the future. We have climate models that give us an idea of what that future looks like, and it looks fairly scary. There are a lot of disruptions on the on the horizon. And and then at the same time, we actually have at least half of our political system is dedicated to this sort of rigid denialism that data doesn't exist and the, and that truth d- isn't out there, essentially. Um, and they're, they're sort of dedicated to this weird magical thinking. And unfortunately, that means that it, the way our government is set up, that means absolute gridlock, which means that you are prevented from adapting. That means you're prevented from preparing. It means you're prevented from, from thinking ahead and making smart choices. And really, that's what the whole book is about, is what happens to people who are data-driven and interested in their present and are paying attention and do something about it versus those people who engage in magical thinking and denial. Well, in your book, the the country that is the model of our future is Mexico, Mexico in the present looks a lot like your future yeah, America. I, I modeled I modeled a lot of Phoenix's collapse in this story off of like things like Ciudad Juarez and and the reporting out of there as as it sort of collapsed into sort of this narco anarchy. Um, it's really striking to see how 
quickly you can unravel civilization. You know, at one point everything's fine and then for some reason the murder rate rises and then it goes up and then it goes up and nobody knows why exactly. It's almost like an infectious disease in and of itself that suddenly murder is the fast and quick solution in a place. And, and you watch that sort of spiral out of control and it makes you realize how, how delicate a stable society actually is and how little we understand about why it unravels and why it unravels very quickly. And I wanted to model that inside of the this future United States where Phoenix has run out of water and has really unstable water supplies and they're also being overwhelmed with climate refugees from Texas. And there's so there a bunch of sort of destabilizing things that are happening in Phoenix. And I wanted to model that in a way that felt really visceral to the reader, that they could live inside of the skin of a climate refugee like Maria, where, you know, Maria Villarosa is one of the characters. And she has fled out of Texas, but sort of gotten trapped in Phoenix because all the state border control laws won't let her get anywhere else. And so she's living as a second-class citizen in a, in a society that's already falling apart. I think that's an interesting sort of space to be in. And, and we have models for what societies look like when they rip themselves to shreds. And so I incorporated those models in my story. <laughs> well, the story is really important in this book on a number of levels. This is a great combination. You managed to perfectly integrate two very different things, a thought experiment about what happens when society falls apart and a ripping yarn uh, about uh, mysteries, murders, con- conspiracies, right. and coincidence. Yeah, I um, I actually, I really, I think, I think that when you're a fiction writer, your first job is actually to entertain. If you aren't interested in entertaining people, really, you should be a journalist. You should be a nonfiction writer. You should, uh, you should just report the dry facts. If you're interested in fiction, then, then your job is to communicate, you know, some deep engagement with your characters and and some deep and and sort of thrilling wonder with a plot. That said, it doesn't mean it have to, it does that doesn't mean it has to be dumb. It doesn't have to be simple. It doesn't have to be meaningless. And in fact, I think that when you have really interesting characters who are living inside of some strange world, it gives you a chance to live inside of their skin. It gives you a chance to build empathy for a, a future that we don't really have empathy for at all. So the idea is, is that fiction gives you this sort of passport into the future where it's like, okay, so what does this world look like? How does it feel? I get to live inside of you know, somebody like Maria's skin and see what it's like to be a climate refugee, or I can be, you know, Angel Velasquez and I can be a water knife, you know, one of the 007s of water who goes out and sort of gives people offers on their water rights that they can't refuse and who, you know, will blow up somebody else's water treatment plant. He's very action figure sort of in his design, but like it, it makes for a thrilling read. But then you also see exactly what Las Vegas is doing to make sure that they're keeping their water. They have water knives and other people don't. At the center of this book, or one of the many things at the center of this book, is the CAP. Right. So tell us what the CAP is and why it's so important. The CAP is the Central Arizona Project, and it's this amazing canal. Um, This is true. This this is is real. Yes, this is not science fictional. It should be science fictional, but it's not. Um, (laughs) It's probably, I mean, it's this this boondoggle of a federal project that that was built, yeah, I think it was finished back in the 80s, and... uh, and it's this giant concrete line canal that runs 300 miles across the Arizona desert. It starts in the Colorado River. They actually pump it uphill. I can't remember. I think it's up, but like I think the elevation gain. They have to get it up about a thousand feet before it finally gets to Phoenix. Um, so they actually have 
coal-burning power plants that are dedicated to pumping water to move this water because water is heavy. Getting it uphill is not easy. It takes a lot of energy. So they have these coal-burning power plants to to run these pumps that pushes this water up to these up this hill, and then it runs down through these long canals, hundreds of miles across the desert, open in the air, evaporating the whole way to water like a desert. Out, it sounds like <laughs> something out of a Terry Gilliam movie. It's ridiculous. It's, it's totally <laughs> absurd. But and, and uh, you know now that it's up and running, of course that means that that Phoenix thinks that they have tons of water too so and 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 much of arizona you can you can grow alfalfa in the desert it's it's you know it's absurd um and and yet there it is well it's interesting because as we read this book and then when you go out when you drive away any like more than a mile outside of pretty much any town in california what you enter is pretty much scrub desert you realize just this is not like the green flowing place it was it, it's painted up to be. Right, yeah. I mean, in any place where you can spread enough water around, you can make it bloom. You can turn it into Eden. I think Eden is water. And sure enough, in places like Arizona or anywhere else, if you've got access to the water, you know, certainly you have a long growing season. So things can be extremely lush as long as you keep dumping water on. But you see what that landscape is without that water. And you see how bare and how desperate and how deliberate that landscape is about sort of grabbing onto water and retaining water and holding onto it as long as it can. And that's sort of the opposite of the way human beings behave when we have water that comes cheap out of our tap. Tell us about uh, Angel Velasquez. Who is he and how did you create him? I think you did a great job at giving him a backstory that is slowly revealed. And that's part of the the trick of storytelling is we meet somebody and then are anxious to find out how they became right. who they are. Angel is Angel is this um so he is this water knife and he does work for for Las Vegas. He works for the 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 head of the Southern Nevada Water Authority, Catherine Case. And and he goes out and he does all the dirty work to make sure that Las Vegas always has the water. And so whether that's blowing up a water treatment plant or assassinating somebody or making someone disappear. He does whatever it takes to get it done. And and then the Southern Nevada Water Authority and Las Vegas all stand back and say, yeah, we don't know what happened to that person. Uh, do you want to take our new offer for your water rights? Um, <laughs> and uh, and so he's he's you know he's he's a he's a he's a tough person. He's 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 a thug in a lot of ways. And as the story goes on, you sort of see where he came from, and you see why that working for someone like the Southern Nevada Water Authority feels like the right choice and the smart choice to him. And in fact, almost all the characters in the story they they're making decisions that you wouldn't always consider to be moral, but you also see the pressures that they're under that caused them to make their choices. Uh, I like the kind of the feel of the way we meet the individual characters and each is in kind of a different place. And as readers, we're trying to put together a lot of different things at once. And I think this is an, an interesting form of creating reading tension because we're immersed in a world that seems familiar, that's obviously came from ours, but we have a couple, a lot of questions. How did the world get from where we are now to where it is, exactly what it is, and exactly how are these people going to come together. And I think you do a, a great job of crafting, weaving all those together. Did that like require a lot of spreadsheet work? A lot of strategy. Yeah. Um, to some extent it did. I mean, I, I normally start from a theme that I'm interested in working with. And so in this particular case, I was interested in climate change and drought and, and whether we plan or whether we don't. But then you start sort of hunting around for that. Well, that that's a very dry and sort of you know, theoretical and, and pretty uninteresting sort of concept, really. And so then you're hunting around for those 
those people that will give you windows into that idea. And so, the, you know, you have somebody like Angel who's a water knife or you have someone like Lucy Monroe who's a journalist who's been covering Phoenix and describing over, over the course of years, describing the way that Phoenix has collapsed. Um, she sort of talks about herself as being a collapsed pornographer where she covers the, the destruction of Phoenix. And so you've got someone like that who gives you an interesting window into both what Phoenix used to be, what it is now, and her relationship with watching this place fall apart. Um, you've got people like Maria, who, this climate refugee, who's just stuck there and doesn't want to be there and is trying to get out, but she can't. And then there is sort of an element of strategy where you're like, okay, these are windows. These are all the windows that I really like. I really, I really engage with these characters because I've done all this work sort of building them into, into fully fleshed people that I really care about. Well, how is it that they all end up running across each other? And so then you start kind of poking at plot and starting to think about, like, how do I want all these people to move across the board? And, and, and what, what should they be interested in? And, and what brings them into conflict? And where might, they, where might there be points of agreement or interest in one another? Where might there be points of conflict? And, and that's, you know, and then it's the kind of the fun thing is once you have those characters built to the extent that you believe in them and you have your world built to the extent that you believe in the world, then in a lot of ways you can almost put them in a room and you can start seeing them talk to each other right away and you're like, aha, there's there's a values conflict. Got it. Okay. You know, it's things like that. So. I, I like that this novel is a novel not just of the future and not just of the present in terms that it's about the present, but you also reach back into the past, which is, I think, sure. unusual in science fiction. And I like you. Why did you do that? And did this come out of your research? Well, I mean, you know, wherever we end up in the in in the future is a product of past decisions. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really interested in that connection where, okay, here we are now, and the reason why we're this way is because our parents made certain decisions, and their parents before them made certain decisions. And I think that, you know, the I, can, I don't think that you can write a, a futuristic story without sort of connecting those dots in some ways. Okay, these decisions led to this person's life, and they can see it, you know, and... Uh, and so those characters uh, spend a little bit of time sort of considering like, huh, how did we end up on the wrong fork in the timeline sort of? How did we end up in this place that we didn't want to be? Um, and it's sort of they, they sort of look back and they're like, huh, yeah, those people back there didn't make some great choices. Thank you so much. Of course, those people back there are us. Um, but it goes even further back. I mean, it goes all the way back to people like John Wesley Powell, who, you know, looked at the Southwest United States and really understood that there really was very little water here and that we needed to think about water management in some much more holistic ways than we tend to. And uh, that we he didn't, I mean, yeah, there's, there's just a lot there about like, there are early decisions that led to, there's cascades of effects, you know, you wouldn't think that drawing strange state lines you know, would have an effect. But the fact that, you know, that Colorado is the headwaters of the Colorado River where all the snow falls, but that water is going to end up all the way here in California, down in the, um, you know, Imperial Valley or down in San Diego or whatever, that's, you know, the, that's going to be managed, water that's going to be managed across like five different states by the time it finally gets to its final destination, four different states. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you're sort of, you're tracing the, the, the line of the, the river in your head. But anyway, yeah. So. Uh, what is the book Cadillac Desert and why it, is it a Bible to these people? And was it a Bible to you writing the book? Yeah, Cadillac Desert is this amazing book about essentially the, the, the big era of water management hubris, I guess is the best way to describe it. It, it sort of talks about the, the growth of the Southwest and the, and the growth of the West as a story of us figuring out how to hold water, store it, move it, and make make places bloom because of it. And 
And, you know, it talks about things like the Bureau of Reclamation and how powerful these big agencies were when they suddenly decided to say, we're going to dam up all these rivers and then we're going to take all that water and we're going to spread it around in ways that's never been spread around before. And Reisner really just does this amazing job of sort of saying like, yeah, this is really interesting and look at how you know, in some cases corrupt this process is, look at how this, you know, in many cases it leads you towards very unsustainable ideas about what you can do, like you can make, you know, a Phoenix or a or Las Vegas, you know, expand beyond all recognition, or you can put farms in places where a farm never should have been. Um, you can grow rice in a desert. Uh, you know, you, you can you can <laughs> flood seems... irrigate rice in a desert, and it's and you got the water, so why not? And Cadillac Desert really warned that there were we were making really unsustainable solutions, and in a lot of ways we were fooled by our technology. And uh, I weirdly, I just grew up reading that book. My parents had that book on their shelf. People that I know in who you know cover Western sort of environmental issues are all familiar with this book. It's around. It's part of your your sort of lived environment. And so, when I was working on the uh, when I was working on the novel, I kind of want to put a nod to that. And so, Cadillac Desert once again is on everybody's bookshelf, um, though is in a, as in a much more sort of nostalgic, cautionary way than than it is now. So, I think one of the things that when you talk about nostalgia, as, as I was reading this book, I was thinking this. When we, as we get to the core of what's going on, I was just thinking Chinatown, Chinatown. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and, and I thought you did a great job with that. That's really an interesting evocation, and it seems so uh, uh, pertinent. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, the, the, you know, you see the small water conflicts, and they're really just like the large water conflicts. And so, something like you know, Los Angeles taking Owens Valley water is is such an interesting sort of thing. It's like, oh yeah, this city just decided that water doesn't belong in this valley over here and we're going to siphon it across to to some place where it's much more valuable. Um you know, there's the saying that water flows towards money. Um <laughs> not I've heard it, but I like that. Yeah, no, it's a great I mean it describes everything. I mean, mm-hmm. that's 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 the truth is that you know the 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 water will go wherever the money wants it to go and and so in the case of like something like the Owens Valley, the, they didn't stand a chance. And <laughs> Um, Los Angeles took it all. Yeah. In this future, you have a lot of fun, and I think the most fun you have is with the Mary Perrys. So, who are they? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was. Um, yeah, the Mary Perrys. I uh, so I down in, back. <laughs> so this goes back to why I actually wrote the book, um, and what sort of kicked me off and in thinking into thinking that I really did need to write a book like this about drought and climate change and everything. The, the Mary Perrys are this sort of weird religious cult out of Texas, and they sort of believe that they, they believe that the, the, the drought is, is actually caused by sort of God turning, him, turning away from people and that if they can just sort of self-flagellate themselves enough and, and you know, get right with God that the rain's going to come back. This is actually sort of based on the fact that when I was first thinking about writing the book, I was down in 2011, I was down in Texas, and uh, at that time they were having a massive drought, and it was really stunning because you could see all of these effects sort of, you know, on Texas where, you know, farmers were having to put their cattle down because the land couldn't support them, you were seeing farms drying up, you were seeing towns running low on water, but you were also seeing things like rolling brownouts because... The dams didn't have enough water in them to generate hydroelectricity, so they didn't have enough head in the dams in order to turn the turbines, pressure in the dams to um, cascade down and turn the turbines. And so at the same time as everybody's running their air conditioners at max because they're getting all these 100-degree days, they don't have enough electricity because they the hydro capacity is so limited. So you saw all those effects, and that devastating drought so matches 
what climate models sort of say Texas's new normal is going to be. So you sort of realize in that moment that you're actually not in a drought. You're time traveling. It's like, okay, this might look like a drought. No, no, you're time traveling. You're 30 years in the future. You're 50 years in the future. You're 100 years in the future. But you are out there getting a firsthand look at what new normal looks like. And that was scary. But then the really scary thing and it was that Rick Perry, you know, he was governor of Texas and running for president at the time. And he was going around holding prayer circles and praying for rain and encouraging the state to pray for rain. And it was this most astounding sort of example of magical thinking and sort of I don't know what you want to call it, reality freefall that, that uh, you know, I'd ever seen. It was just like, how can this guy be doing this and how can this not be just a national joke? I mean, genuinely, and, and a joke within Texas, and yet he wasn't. This was not political suicide. This was actually, in some cases, politically celebrated. The guy was ridiculous. And so, anyway, I wanted to keep him in the book, too, because that kind of that kind of disengagement with reality and that denial of data strikes me as being something that you want to mark. And so you know, he strikes me as being symptomatic of a of a of an ill that we see throughout America. So and, and I wanna hone in a little bit on what you said about data and reality mm. because <clears throat> there's one uh portion of the book where you say something along the lines of that once data started being mentioned in the same sentence with belief that that right. was the, the tipping point and we have, we are well past that tipping point. Right. Yeah. It's really interesting. A lot of people will say, well, do you believe this science report and or do you believe, you know, in climate change? And that's sort of it's, it's moving. It moves us into the wrong frame of reference for understanding what science does and how it affects us. Science is not the thing that you believe in. Science is the thing that you actually disbelieve and test until you confirm. <laughs> um, you know, it's not a process of belief at all. It's a process of testing and confirmation. Belief is for those things that can't be tested, those things that can never be tested. Does God exist? can't test it, we'll never know. Like, you know, so you, you're you stuck with faith and belief. If you believe and you have faith, that's great. If you don't, fine. But like neither of those, you know, concepts is testable in any in any way. That's not, that's where belief lies. Um, sciences and, and things like whether or not we have climate change, those are things that we test. We say, well, we built a model and oh, look, now the data matches that model. So it looks like we're kind of on the right track and we tested some more and we go, oh, well, this is what we learned now. And, you know, so... <laughs> That whole sort of phraseology, I guess, uh, around the idea that, that we should believe or disbelieve as opposed to simply that we test and therefore we know <laughs> um, is is really frustrating. And it seems to be endemic in America. Um, it, when I go overseas, if I'm in Europe or whatever and, you know, doing work over there, everybody sort of just looks at you like you're a nutball to even describe, <laughs> that, describe that there's still any doubt or, or – um, misunderstandings about climate change. They're just sort of like, huh? How can you be so confused? And, you know, and depressingly enough, the reason why we're confused is because a bunch of carbon companies got together and, and ran a concerted PR campaign to make sure that we stayed confused. It's really, you know, demoralizing sort of to see, you know, major corporations profiting so much from, you know, generating confusion in, you know, America and in democracy generally. You sort of see that moment where they've hacked democracy successfully and we're, we're paralyzed because of it. That's a scary thought. They've hacked democracy cheaply. They actually do it really yeah. cheaply. I mean, if you look at you look at the lobbying budgets that they have and the public relations budgets. I mean, you know, when they give something like you know the Competitive Enterprise Institute, you know, a couple million bucks or something like that to run a run an you know an anti climate change campaign of some sort or a doubt campaign, or they pay a scientist a you know a tiny chunk of change to write some 
stupid report that throws some doubt or some casts some shadow on the idea that climate change is real. It's astonishingly cheap when you look at, you know, some on a good year, you know, ExxonMobil can earn, you know, $50 billion in profit. This isn't their gross, it's their net. I mean, they're walking away with $50 billion. And you're like, wait a second, like if you make that much money and it costs you a couple million to make us all doubt whether or not climate change exists so that we don't regulate you and we don't put a carbon tax on you, you know, that's some of the best spent money you can you can have. Um, it's really cheap to confuse people, and, and it's profitable to do so. Oh, this book then is sort of son of uh, the doubt factory. It, it all kind of connects. I mean, you, you do sort of see these moments where, you know, the, you know, the doubt factory was entirely a book about public relations and the product defense industry and, uh, and, and how well it works and how many different companies use it and use these techniques. These are techniques that the tobacco companies started with long ago. And, and then the people who uh, started doing that work where they were, you know, it was like Hill and Knowlton back in the day working for big tobacco and trying to spread doubt about the science that said, you know, cigarettes are dangerous and they're killing people. And, and the tobacco industry fought for years successfully to keep us confused about that stuff. They had years where they remained unregulated and unlabeled. And then more years where they, you know, sort of continued to hold off uh, the full damage of what they've done, you know. And, uh, but those people who started out working on tobacco then spread out and realized that lots of industries need the same skills and, and techniques as big tobacco did. And so it's like, oh, if you're doing something terrible and unethical and damaging to, you know, the citizenry of a country, we're your people. We'll help you, you know, avoid responsibility <laughs> for it and keep selling your dangerous product for as long as possible and avoid regulation. And, you know, but yeah, with something like the Dow Factory, you write a story like that and you do that kind of research and you find out all these really nefarious things about how companies just in a day to day way do really legal things that are really unethical. Well, you, which you, companies... get to, you get to this moment where you're suddenly like, oh, wow, this is how you build a crummy future like the water knife is we, we let people like ExxonMobil get away with creating a whole bunch of climate doubt. And then and then they will never be they will never, ever be punished, no matter how much it costs us in the future to mitigate against climate change. You know, ExxonMobil will never be punished for the fact that they actually spent so much money hacking democracy into a into a confused state where we still can't even get a, you know, create a concerted action plan. So what companies inspired you uh, beyond ExxonMobil? Were there any specific uh, bits of research you did that inspired the kind of the doubt behind this book? Uh, not not with this one. I wasn't so interested in, in that stuff. Um, I, though I, I, one of the companies I'm really interested in right now is Nestle because of their groundwater uh, policies and pumping and privatization of water and stuff. But they aren't. That wasn't related to doubt industry stuff. That was just. I'm just fascinated with a company that you know privatizes water. Um, but uh, that's always been to me that what what I thought was was terrorizing is the idea of privatizing water. They're trying to do that in bits of Santa Cruz up in the mountains. Sure, and yeah. They, and they I have mean, people on, they have these advertisements, oh, we we didn't privatize, we passed it by and we thought it would be good and now we're just in terrible trouble. And you just got to look at that and think, boy, how much did they pay you, lady? Yeah, it's interesting. Those sort of really basic sort of things we need as, a, as, a, as humans in order to survive, when you turn those into, into tradable commodities that are then going to be sort of invested in by the stock market, which always wants increasing returns, I, I think that you almost always come out with really unethical outcomes. <laughs> Boy, I, I sound like a commie. <laughs> I don't think so. sound like uh, somebody who like... Uh... Yeah, you liberal. Why do you hate America anyway? <laughs> Why not, don't you understand that like, you know, the free markets are everything? So, yeah, anyway. I, I am America. I guess I hate myself. <laughs> I, as a science fiction novel, this is really fun to read because there's 
places where you describe uh, things that I would describe that sound like uh, space stations on the Earth, right. the arcology. So sure. what is an arcology and, and how far, how long have we been doing these things? Do we have some? Do we have some? In, in a way, actually, every office building is almost an arcology. <laughs> um, it's already an enclosed environment that's, you know, sort of already climate controlled. It's already buffered against the elements to some extent. I actually used uh, the casinos in Las Vegas as somewhat of a model as well because they're so designed to keep people indoors. Uh-huh. Like, don't leave the don't leave the blackjack table. Stay here. Stay here longer. It's confusing to get out. They're sort of these self-contained places where you can eat, you play, you live, everything. Um, anyway, so the arcologies are these these futuristic sort of living environments where everything is now contained within the, within the walls of these giant constructions. And there are these arcologies, particularly in Las Vegas, where it's sort of cutting-edge technology in this future, is that the, they're called the Cypress Arcologies. And they're, you know, eating, living, business, play spaces entirely. And so, like, the central bores of these places have hanging gardens and cascading waterfalls. And they're, but they're, you know, everything about the arcology design is, is about bringing resources in and holding them as for as long as possible. So all the water is recycled and, and reused in different ways. It's, you know, your, your sewage is then run through cleaning plants that then feed fish, that then create food, then are sent out to the aquaponics or, you know, their the vertical farms that are on the outer shell of the, of the buildings and so they can catch all the light. And, you know, these things are um, sort of built to sort of use every scrap of resource that they can and and always bring in more. And so if water comes into the arcology, it basically never leaves. And any waste that's there is, you know, will be turned into energy, it'll be turned into nutrients, it'll be kept. And so they're really beautiful in terms of like how efficient they are and how, you know, they, they're they're very lush. They, I just, they're described as being very lush and very welcoming and, and very much in contrast to outside in the desert where everything is hard and harsh. If you're rich enough or you're lucky enough and you're inside of a Cypress arcology, you're living the good life. The thing that I'm really interested in with those arcologies is that they also sort of represent a sort of a failure of human imagination on a larger scale because they're an adaptation to the scarcity of water and resources. They say, okay, these things are scarce. We need to hold them as long as we can. The outside world is no longer friendly to us, so we need to sort of encase ourselves inside of them. We need to wall ourselves off from the environment as we've destroyed more and more of the environment. You know, the cheaper solution would have been a car tax, you know, 100 years back, but oh well, you know, now we're building arcologies instead and we're bunkering down, essentially. Um, so they're both beautiful and they're in, in their own way sort of very tragic in, in my mind. This novel suggests to me that the people, maybe the year 2100, 2200, will look back on the years between 1800 and 2100 as the years when humanity decided to unterraform the earth to the point where right. it's no longer exactly friendly yeah, 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 habitable yeah, yeah. that's what de- we're doing de- right de- now deterraforming yes it's yeah it's exactly it and and that you know i mean i've always been interested in the idea of domed cities you know mm-hmm. the science fictional concept of domed cities and cities uh, in flight remember that book yeah, james and, blish and and so there you know i mean this is this is sort of a a science fictional conceit that shows up again and again and uh and then you realize at some point, like if you ever walked around in inside of the, you know, the, you know, downtown of Minneapolis, where you're inside of buildings all the time, walking in tubes between buildings and things like that. Oh, this is kind of already that concept. Just because it's not a dome doesn't mean we're not very deliberately walling ourselves off from the elements outside. Like this is a space station almost. Um, and uh, so, yeah, anyway, that's sort of the starting point of thinking about those things. It's like, okay, so what if you take, you know, these environments, you know, a mall or whatever is already a pretty highly contained living environment in many ways. You know, what if you just keep expanding that concept and 
and what does that say about us and what does that say about our relationship with the environment? I know a lot of people who pick up this novel are going to read this and say, how did this guy know that senior rights and junior rights and all this stuff that we're just hearing about in California now right. were going to turn out to be so important. Right. <laughs> those those little widgets that turn out to actually control your entire life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm always interested in those things, actually. I'm really interested in obscure pieces of legislation, obscure laws that, that, that sort of order our society, and they're mm -hmm. mostly invisible um, until everything's breaking, and suddenly you, you, you're, you're sitting there and in your city in California looking out at the farmers who have all the water rights and you're like, we want yours. And they're like, no, no, we have them. They're senior for us. And you're like, no, no, we still want them. I actually grew up on a small farm in western Colorado and you actually have a really strong understanding of how water functions and how water rights function because of that. For me growing up, I could see snow on the mountains and so I'd know exactly how much snowpack there was. And so you would know very early on in the spring uh, whether or not you were going to have a good year or a bad year in terms of your water supply. You could see the the giant reservoir that was nearby also filling. It was a federal water project about 15 miles up the road from where I lived. So you could see it filling. You could see how low it was. Is it drained as, it got, as the water got used? So you could also see, you know, how's your water storage doing? But then there was an irrigation canal that ran from that reservoir all the way to my house, over 20 miles of, of you know, irrigation canals coming to the land that my family farmed. And so, and then you would use that water to irrigate. On a good year, you would get water that would last out until October. And you could see snow on the mountains all the way until July. On a bad year, the snow is off the mountains by April. And then the really interesting thing that happens is that around July, your water just gets turned off. And you can go down to the river bottom and you can see water going by. There's still water in the river. There's still water available, theoretically. But it turns out that somebody with a higher water right, a more senior water right than you, has put a call on the river. And so now, by legal obligation, you're required to send that water downstream to that more senior water user. And it's really interesting to sort of see that because you suddenly understand, oh, this water right is a very um, – uh, it's it's a contingent thing. You know, you have water today, but but if somebody with with a higher right wants it, they can take it at any time. And as long as their share their shares have to be met completely, um, and so there's no oh well maybe we can share it a little bit. It's like no no we get all of ours if we're senior, and if you're junior you get squat, and and that you know makes an impression when you're growing up. So. Well, it's certainly made a vivid impression on me when I read the descriptions uh, in the book. You do a great job of explaining just what would happen to any suburb in America if you turn the water off. I mean, it's more devastating than a bomb. It's like a it's like a, a dirty bomb. Right. Yeah, no, there is this moment where... Neutron yeah, bomb. It's, yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, you invest all of this money in trying to build a house, right? So if you've got a five-bedroom, three-bath you know, bath house with lovely granite countertops and, I you like know, that. and yeah, bamboo guys... floors or whatever the thing yeah. is, you know, you can, you can make all sorts of lovely sort of you know, with fa fabulous, you know, sort of hand cast fixtures, all, you know, anything you want, you know, you make this lovely house. But, you know, if the toilet doesn't flush and there's no water coming out of the tap, it actually has zero value. And suddenly your granite countertop is just a bunch of rock sitting there because you, that, that actually is where the value in a house comes from is the, the ability to, like, actually live in it. And without water, it's no longer a livable space. It's just It just happens to be a spot that keeps rain off your head. A structure in the desert. Yeah, right. Well, and so, yeah. Um, it's, it is interesting that, that, yeah, you look at these spaces and, and we don't really notice what actually makes them genuinely livable. Um, 
you know, we spend all this time looking at these expensive, you know, sort of accoutrements that we can load into a house. But the thing that matters is, you know, does it have power? Does it have water? <laughs> uh, that's, that's what makes it actually livable. And does it have sewage? And, you know, those things, without those things, the rest of it, it's, it's the, those are the veins. Those are the, that's the lifeblood of a home. Well, it's fun, too, in terms of this as a novel, and uh, that's thrilling and exciting. There are, are great scenes where there's a confrontation at a water plant, and, you know, there's a, a real showdown over water. Right. <laughs> yeah, really yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is my attempt to make water rights exciting. Yeah, it's like, who yeah. knew you could have a gun battle, <laughs> you, know, a, you know, an actual, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, has this been optioned yet? Helicopter battle over, over um over water rights, um, it, it's uh, I, I can't really go into a lot of details. Um, we're sort of working with some people right now uh, to see whether or not there's something we can do with it for for film or television or whatever. But I can't go into a lot of details. Well, it seems like it's it's practically a current event. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. Well, it sort of feels like yeah. The the California stuff really has has you know thrown thrown the book into into really sharp relief because um, I think that. You know, in some cases, you know, when we look at science fiction, we say, oh, yeah, that's that spaceships and Barbarella thing out there. And and instead you have people sort of reading the book and being like, oh, my God, this is life. This is what we're looking at. This is us. And that's what you're aiming for, really, is is you're gunning for that feeling of a visceral connection to your future that we so often don't don't have. Well, that's the I think that that one core idea and I discussed this a little bit earlier is this idea of that. We think things can change. Oh, it's going. This drought's going to end. Mm. And but there's two generations of characters in this book. There's um, Maria's father, I think, who mm-hmm. believes, oh, it's going to change. It's all going to be better. And he's right, right, kind right, of right. stuck. And she realizes, no, this is it. Right. And yeah. The... That kind of uh, changing of our perceptions is really it's terrorizing to be confronted with that. I'm really interested in the idea of changing baselines that you know what one generation sort of think believes the world is is not the things that the next generation takes for granted. You know, my son recently was was saying, "Wait, you didn't have you had phones with wires?" Like <laughs> and you're like, "Oh right, this is just his expectation about what a phone is is just different straight up." And and you see that, you know, with all kinds of technologies all the time. But yeah, I mean, the, there can be a moment where where a kid looks back and says, "Huh, you mean you didn't have state border control laws? What do you mean? How did people? Well, what would you? How they just let people go between states? You know, and the kid could be just as confused about that. And you know, I noticed it actually with after nine eleven that the kids growing up today have never lived in a world that isn't threat level orange. That's true, and that's a that's fairly that's a really terrorizing idea. It in fact terrorizes them completely. And so they're very they're very acquiescent when we talk about having a nice police state to keep them safe. They're like, well it's threat level orange. We're always in danger. And uh, and so you see something like that and 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 you realize that their their baseline is a baseline of fear. They're a baseline of we've always been at war. They're a baseline that um, you know just thinks completely differently about what quote normal is. And and so, yeah, in this future, Maria has a very different sense of what normal is. She says, oh, normal is being a refugee and we never get to go back, where the father still keeps saying, oh, we're going to be able to go back. Everything can change. It'll get better again. And, yeah, they have completely different perceptions on what 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 reality is, actually, and the lenses that they have uh, and their biases because of their experiences are completely different. Well, one thing, though, I like about this book 
is that for all the terror it inspires, it's fun to read. It's not mm. just like dire. It's right. not like a, a novel you read and say, okay, I'm going to just slip my wrist and right, give up. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think you do that. Part of that is because you have such engaging characters and, and they kind of prove heroic against our expectations. Yeah. I, uh, I, you know, I want to enjoy my stories, you know, even, even if it's a, if, even if it's a broken future, you want to have characters you can root for and, you know, and situations that where you can, you know, so hold on by the, you know, the, you know, the, the, you can grip your seat and sort of hope that they can make it through. Um, and, and, and that some of those moments can be, you know, that you can have, you know, tender moments or that you can have funny moments or ironic moments and, and that all those things can exist, even if the world is sort of, you know, shattered. And if everybody's trying to sort of figure out how to survive it, there's still, um, the rest of life still goes on and all those pieces can be in there. And hopefully for a reader, it's actually, you know, a, a joy to read from, you know, the beginning to the end that they, you, you, that they will be drawn through all the way to the end. If it's too horrific, you know, then you stop reading somewhere in the middle and you're like, I can't take it. And you walk away. Well, Sometimes people do that with me. <laughs> I, I found that as I, when I finished this book, I thought, well, here's a guy between the water knife and zombie baseball beatdown. Here right. is a guy who is having a blast. So what are you going to do next? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I like to balance things out. I do like to balance things out. Um, it's really nice to be able to, you know, sort of do something really serious like the water knife and then to do something really playful um, for kids like zombie baseball beatdown. Um, you know, I feel like those are different muscles for me. <laughs> and it's like you want to have a fully exercised body. So you know, don't don't neglect leg day. The next things I'm probably looking at, uh, I'm going to be writing one more book in my Shipbreaker series for young adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll probably be, and my son actually is leaning on me to do another zombie baseball beatdown book. Um, <laughs> All right. And which I, which is very appealing to me for personal reasons. Just it's so much fun to do it. Uh, and then my next adult book, I'm thinking, I'm really interested in biodiversity right now. And, you know, the changes that we're seeing in, in extinction and biodiversity and things like that and how ecosystems adapt or, or are become bankrupted sort of. And so I'm fascinated with that idea. And so I want to kind of poke at that. And I don't know how that story is going to build out yet, whether that's, I think that's going to be my next adult novel, but it's going to be down the road a little bit. I've been speaking with Paolo Bacigalupi. His new novel is The Water Knife. Thank you for joining me, Paolo. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.